Hi there, I'm T.G. Brandfault, and you are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we'll bring you essential cannabis business news and insights by speaking with stakeholders, experts, and entrepreneurs who are focused on normalizing and demystifying the cannabis industry. I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Cachet, the CEO, and Dr. Joshua Erlenbaugh, the COO and Director of Production from Flourish Farms, a Sonoma County, California patient research farm specializing in cannabis products, including sun-grown indoor flower, pure flower oil rosin, and innovative and energy-efficient grow solutions. How are you guys doing today? Hey, thanks for having us. So today's show is a little bit different than our usual format because we have two guests. I'm sure our audience is very curious to learn about the technology you use. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask each of you about your personal background and how you came to apply your experience to growing cannabis. This is uh, Dr. Josh Erlenbaugh. Um, I was finishing my PhD in analytic philosophy at the University of California at Davis. And... and uh, I started hobby growing for my own medicinal purposes. Uh, I was getting some pretty cool results with LEDs at the time. They weren't really uh, big for commercial at the time, but I was getting interesting results, so I kept playing with them. Um, I ended up starting delivery service my last year, my PhD, and started moving some of that stuff through there to get uh, market feedback, and uh, I just fell in love with growing things for the market at that point. And at GHC, that's where I met JC. Yeah, so this is uh, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. Um, I have a PhD in behavioral psychopharmacology, uh, meaning that during my graduate school years, I was licensed by the DEA to handle and research Schedule One through four drugs. Um, our goals were to build new models of zebrafish affective disorders, um, and it's some pretty interesting stuff. If you go to PubMed or Amazon and, and search for uh, zebrafish on LSD, you could see some of my papers. Um, Post-PhD, I went into data science, so I started a postdoc um, at the Uni uh, University of California, Davis, in the data science department looking to integrate neuro neuroscience data, um, and then through the delivery service GHC, uh, ran into Josh. So I think it's safe to say that we hit it off. Uh, Josh shared some ideas that he had been playing around with, with growing uh, plants underneath the sun tubes. Um, and I sort of looked at him and said, let's do it. Let's try it. And that was about two years ago. I know a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs find their way into the industry from an academic background, but to some people that might seem like a big leap. What would you say initially caused you to make that leap? This is Josh again. I, like I said, I was using it medicinally. Um, so I, you know, I was, I was kind of out, out of the closet on that because I, I had to use a lot of it. It helped me uh, with my ADHD to actually get my PhD finished so I could focus on it, um, anger issues, stuff like that. It, it would just help with the, the type of environment that was putting myself in high stress. And so I believed in it a lot. And there was other people, uh, you know, in the neighborhood that I felt like could use um, similar types of medicine. And like I said, I was getting good, cool results with my LEDs that were helping with uh, my, my particular condition. So I wanted to you know, let other people have a shot at it. Yeah, I think we can certainly attribute some of the like analytic, uh, analytical approach to the philosophy too and designing light recipes for all over all that time. Josh was using LEDs like over the last seven years, the developments there have been significant um, and, and vary a lot. So I think his analytical mind, like it's, it's not necessarily that the, you know, I think that the path of the, the degrees that we took got us, got us here on purpose, I guess I should yeah. say. Um, you know, for me, it was an understanding that if I wanted the opportunity to learn about cannabis and endocannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system, you know, basically at this point, we understand it regulates homeostasis in almost every organ uh, of your entire body. It's like a thermometer of your entire room. Uh, turns things up when it's too cold and, and relaxes things if they get too uh, excitatory in like a epilepsy example. So in order to further our understanding of seemingly one of the most important signaling systems within our biology, it just occurred to me that I could pursue such research faster in a consumer market because really what we're trying to do is understand how different uh, cannabinoid profiles or terpene profiles relate, uh, relates to a patient's symptoms and, and symptology. So, um, you know, it was a desire to enter a space that was rapidly growing that could handle innovative ideas and um, would allow us to 
not only further the treatment of our loved ones and ourselves in some way, but those who then join into the collective. And bigger than that, you know, furthering endocannabinoid research and knowledge, as well as tackling one of the bigger and more interesting problems of the amount of energy consumed in an indoor grow. Okay, so let's get right into that because I'm sure our audience is eager to learn more. Uh, I know our editor Graham and our COO Noel saw your display at the New West Summit in San Francisco a few weeks ago and they were really blown away by the concept. I have yet to see one in person, but I, as I understand it, you are using solar tubes or a unique kind of skylight that harnesses the sunlight into a tube and uh, beams it into a room, not a greenhouse, but actually an indoor structure. Can you walk us through how this all works and what sets it apart from other indoor lighting methods? The sun tubes uh, are a pretty simple idea. My my dad was putting one in his bathroom years ago, and I asked him what they were, and he was like, it's a tubular skylight. Um, there's light from outside, travels down through it. It's pretty reflective material. And then you have some light in your bathroom for free. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I had just started growing with LEDs, and I was like, I wonder if I could use that to supplement uh, you know, the photo energy, the power. Uh, and eventually... I looked into it more, found SolarTube, and that was about the time when I met um, JC. Yeah. yeah, so we, we basically reached out to SolarTube, um, said we wanted to perform some research that were both a bunch of PhDs in Davis, um, and they had technology and have developed patented protected technology to uh, capture, transfer, and deliver natural sunlight indoors. Um, they have uh, a patented material called Spectrolite Infinity. Spectrolite Infinity. This limits the amount of light lost due to diffuse reflection. So, you know, scientific story short, it allows us to send in 99.7% of the sunlight's natural spectrum into our room without IR, which is what heat is. We dissipate the heat before we bring it in and limiting UV uh, to, to a pretty big, a large extent, for good reason, I think uh, we can explain later. But uh, if you can imagine walking into a room that's completely dark and then these dimmers open up and all of a sudden you're in this completely dark space but lit by natural sunlight, the color rendering index in that room, how it makes you feel when you have the natural light on your skin. Um, when we say sun grown indoor, we really do mean we're, we're utilizing the, the rays from the natural sun in order to support the plant growth inside of the environment. And you have, you use a, you use soil for your indoor grows as well, right? Um, we use soil to an extent right now. The first grow we did was about 15 to 20% soil, uh, mixed in with cocoa that was amended. And then I recycle all of that. So like the next run is the same cocoa amended with more of the farm dirt. I'm trying to find out how much um, actual native soil I can get into uh, before it gums up the system. Because indoors is pretty difficult to keep irrigations if you're doing all probiotic and, and uh, organic the way we're doing it. And I think, too, the, the approach to growing with soil indoor, you're right to point out, is not very um, – not very popular at the moment. What we're trying to do and where the fundamental belief comes from is that the relationship between the soil and plants um, and the organisms within their, uh, you know, within the, the diversity of, of growth and uh, flora basically work together to, in concert, through signaling molecules to try to say, okay, I need some more potassium and this fungus knows where the potassium is and can come back and get it. Um, it's more of a... Um, a preventative or, or probiotic approach rather than I think what you can get into uh, without the plants in the room having their natural immunities is, you know, rapid infestations that then require very sometimes harsh, quick reactive uh, measures. You know, it's everybody knows that balance of yeah. trying to hold them steady. Um, but by bringing in the uh, indoor soil, using things like cover crop, we're allowed to diversify the plants that the insects are attached to. We can help the soil, the soil, retain moisture more um, more than without, and the um, fauna and flora that live in there communicate with the plant to grow a really healthy plant. So I want to backtrack here for a second. As I understand it, the company that produces these skylights, SolarTube, is a mainstream residential brand that does not have much to do with agriculture and certainly not cannabis. So how did that first meeting go when you reached out to them? Were they receptive to the idea of their product being used in this way? Were they shocked? Did they threaten to call the cops? How did that conversation play out? 
Um, I think that it is something that Solitude was not unaware of. Or I guess say they were very well aware that there's people calling them pretty regularly uh, wanting to use the, their products to grow plants. Um, you got to understand that Solitude, they're, they're, uh, the work that they do and the, the amount of light measurements that they do are in like Lux or foot candles. So how much light uh, can come down from a 35-foot tall warehouse ceiling so someone's desk, you know, three feet off the ground is properly illuminated. So, you know, when the people that wanted to grow plants underneath them started asking them questions about, well, how much PAR can I get? What are the PAR measurements? Uh, the people at Solitude really weren't equipped, nor did they have the data um, to get some accurate information about that. So, you know, the first call between us and them was pretty interesting. I told them I was a researcher at UC Davis. We were interested in using them in indoor agriculture. Um, and I think the, the, first, the first guy I talked to said, OK, all right, all right. Well, if you're going to grow with cannabis, just let me know, um, because we get a lot of people that like to call and beat around the bush. But we definitely know we definitely know what they're calling about. And I sort of said, yeah, we're going to try to grow cannabis under there. And we'd like to see uh, to see if it works, because if it does work, uh, it could it could be a real paradigm shift and a real godsend to the energy impact that the, the newly you know onboarding uh, cannabis market, regulated cannabis market could bring. Um, so since that interaction, you know, it's just been nothing but uh, uh, grown better from there. They have some very strong expertise in light physics and the way that it interacts with different materials and wavelengths. Um, and I think that uh, through our, you know, credentials, but then also our very serious approach to data collection and actually measuring and monitoring uh, the diamonds, the dynasty of the data and light that light moves through the space. Um, they really knew that we were doing it correctly and that we were getting good results and that uh, so now we have in place with them an agreement where anybody who calls them about uh, the use of the tubes in the indoor space, they send them to us first um, foremost. So we can design systems that have worked. There have been plenty of systems that people have put together that just don't achieve um, you know, anything close to commercial results. The plants will grow. Yeah. But are the buds going to be uh, good enough for a jar? Probably not. Um, and we built the system. So now they come to us and we're able to uh, take in their needs, like their growing style, um, where they're located, how many rooms they'd like to do and build them out a whole preliminary analysis of how our system would, uh, of which the tubes are a, a component work together for them. So let's talk about the solar tubes for a second. How durable are they? What is the expected lifetime on them? What is the maintenance like overall? What are the associated costs with getting set up and running a grow? In terms of uh, their durability and, um, you know, quality in the product, the product that's built, Solitube, all of their products are, you know, ISO quality certified, all the manufacturing processes are. The, the best details I can get into are on the collector, there's a set of four straps, and those are called the hurricane straps. Um, so if you could take winds in, in a hurricane and not budge, then, I, you know, it's pretty, pretty strong stuff. Um, in terms of the maintenance, that's an interesting uh, question because if we're making a comparison against uh, HPS or any other light for that matter, you're going to have to have an annualized budget for replacing the bulbs. Um, with the solar tube, there are no mechanical parts, so there's not very much to break or wear down, uh, the one exception being the dimmer. But the maintenance for us really is, you know, every two weeks or so or um, – We'll send somebody up with a microfiber cloth, clean off the front of them, and, and just make sure they're shiny and come back down. And what kind of, uh, what kind of yield do you get from, from this technology? And, how, and what is the time comparison to uh, more traditional type grows? <clears throat> We're getting about the same time as far as, as far as that goes. I mean, it also will depend on what type of artificials that you're using. We're using LEDs because that's what I know how to use. Uh, and I figured that I would be able to control the spectrum and blend it in with uh, the sun tube spectrum more. Uh, what was the first question? Yields. How Yields. Yields, I have been extremely happy so far. First first uh, run, we scaled up at 27, 26 grams yes, yeah, per, per square, square foot. It uh, looks like the next one will be 30 to 35. Um, so it looks like it's going to comfortably get up to where we want, which is like 50, 60, 70, uh, in the normal amount of time you'd expect from, um, a grow room for like we, we got six about, months to a year. We got about a pound to a pound and a half. 
per light. So mm -hmm. if you were to compare that to an HPS, you know, that's on par. And uh, we need to dial things in. So we're hopeful that they're going to continue to rise as well. Um, as Josh was noting with the LEDs and in terms of the length, you know, one of the other interesting things that we're allowed to do or are able to do with the way the grow room set up, we, we fueled plant growth with the natural sunlight. We'll get anywhere from 300 to 600 ambient par within the space and then this hot dynamic spot that moves across the plant canopy that it can spike pars between like 900 and 1300 par. So, you know, just a great amount of par in that space, natural sunlight par. So as that nice dynamic base is moving along and fueling plant growth, we can very um, specifically and tightly regulate, okay, let's throw far red on these flowering pans at this point and reduce the amount that they're vegging and stretching and growing and get them to build out those buds more. Okay, let's pull that back now. Let's do a week later, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll shift when we throw the far red. So understanding how those LEDs are related to plant development in very specific ways allows us to then make decisions on how fast we, we actually would like to run that flower period for. You've mentioned research several times. Have you run any trials to compare this process to other growing methods? And if so, what was the outcome? Did you find that the sunlight via solar tubes was as effective as outdoor sunlight? Sure. Yeah, we, we ran a, a grape ape clone from a local nursery uh, this year. And I ran it outdoor, <clears throat> like a big one. Um, she was about three pounds, I think, outdoors. It was like a three-month plant. And then I ran it inside as well. Um, the most notable thing, other than that, there's like a clear quality difference from indoor and outdoor uh, in general. And that was that was there. Visually. Yeah, it was just where one of them looks, uh, a lot of people say kinder. Um, it's just less weathered is really what it comes down to. Um, the flesh of the plant, it hasn't been beat up as much so usually it's lighter green of course we had all that but what i was most um blown away by was the average bud size i mean the three pound plant was very large um but when it broke down uh it didn't really break down to as big of buds as uh the indoors because they didn't have to be broke down as much so their their average bud size was quite a bit bigger and that was probably the most uh, visually stunning thing other than the fact that it just looks a lot nicer because it's indoor and if you like that type of uh, look lighter greens and more more vibrant oranges and more frosting then uh, then it definitely is going to hit all those quality benchmarks that indoor growers are looking for in addition to we were able to compare the analytics so the cannabinoid profile and the terpene profile of the same genetics grown outdoor and one grown in the sun grown indoor room um, SC Labs was able to do a pretty extensive panel for us, and basically what we got back is that the outdoor and the sun-grown indoor in terms of cannabinoid content are equally complex, um, higher or lower than each other, but pretty much equal in terms of the number of cannabinoids, so CBG, CB, uh, THCV, CBN, those things, um, and then also just as complex and rich as the terpene profile. Um, so why I say this is that uh, most uh, testing labs that I talk to say that outdoor plants for, sh for certain have a more complex and slightly elevated cannabinoid profile compared to the same uh, strain or genes grown indoors, presumably under HPS light. Um, initially, I would have thought that that was the opposite, but that seems to be the truth. So what the analytics tell us at this point is that there are any um, affordances or any benefits of growing uh, outdoor by having the natural sunlight increase the diversity and complexity of the cannabinoid and terpene profile, we are also afforded those same benefits with the sun-grown indoor room because we have brought in that light spectrum. That's really incredible, but uh, we have to take a short break right now. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about energy efficiency. I'm your host, T.G. Brand. entrepreneur comes with a lot of stress. And while you are busy developing and running your business, managing a team of loyal employees, and working to build a sustainable venture, the last thing you should need to worry about are your personal finances. With Latitude Financial Group, you will have the tools you need to manage your finances efficiently and easily without all the hassle. Latitude Financial Group provides a platform that shows you everything you have all in one place and that stays current without time-consuming updates and synchronizations. 
You'll gain access to a free one-hour consultation and an award-winning financial management software suite that will empower you to better visualize and manage your finances. With Latitude, you can form a relationship with an unbiased, fee-based, objective, professional, personal advisor who understands your unique concerns, who listens to your needs, and who has years of experience applying financial solutions to the most complicated of financial scenarios. Based in Denver, Colorado, the Latitude Financial Group team will work with you in ways that fit your life. Whether you prefer a face-to-face -face meeting with an advisor at one of their 20 Metro Denver area locations, a phone call, or a Skype meeting, they can help you work to achieve your financial goals. So, if your personal or business finances are causing you stress, if you are losing sleep wondering if your financial future is secure in the career path you have chosen, or if you want to work with a financial advisor who is interested in helping you become successful in your business endeavors, give Latitude Financial Group a call and start being proactive about your financial future today. Don't wait. Latitude is offering the first 10 listeners one year of free access to their award-winning software platform. Go to rollingingrass.com. That's rollingingrass.com to get latitude in your financial life. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member of FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Scott Cody, Daniel Grote Representatives, Latitude Financial Group, and Securities America are unaffiliated. Latitude Financial Group and the Securities America companies are unaffiliated. Welcome back. I'm T.G. Brandfeld. I'm with Dr. Jonathan Cachet and Dr. Josh Erlenbaugh of Flourish Farms. And we're talking about your sun-grown indoor flower growing technique. So I wanted to ask about your energy usage uh, that you typically see using your approach. Is the sunlight from your DSS tubes able to offset a significant amount of energy compared to your average indoor grow? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's try to just paint a picture uh, as an example here. So we got a two thousand five hundred square foot grow room. Um, it's got four by four trays, maxed out as much as it can. Um, and if that room had to have one hundred and fifty HPS lights, one thousand watt HPS lights, the electrical demand over that year for just turning the lights on in that room is about seven hundred thousand kilowatt hours a year. So. The 2,500 square foot flowering room, you turn on your lights, you got about 700 kilowatt hours per year, 700,000 700, kilowatt hours per year. And using data that we've uh, collected based on how we can step up and step down the LEDs, a room with the exact same size, 2,500 square foot, would, would need about uh, 90,000 kilowatts per year. So this is about 600, uh, 600 kilowatt hours per year that's saved. Um, or about $125,000 saved in just the electrical cost compared to turning on the HPS lights. We haven't even gotten into the HVAC uh, and, and the other necessary controls. And maybe if you want to approach that from a different angle too, Josh. Yeah, actually, we're just even a follow-up, right? Because, I mean, that you know, our, our numbers there are figured in. That's not just light walks, right, mm -hmm. 291. So it's like um, – I'd say it's about 10 times. I mean, I'd say at the end of the day, if you're talking 2,000 watts per square meter, we're at about 200. For the That's for everything. That's including the HVAC, um, that dehumidifier, which is reclaiming water, um, all, all of everything, including the thing that's, that's capturing the data itself, the computer that's actually even doing that. Uh, yeah. We're including all of those things in our... In yeah, our, a lot of people like to talk about like, grams per watt. And there's a number of different ways you could do that. Grams per total watts uh, in one cycle or throughout the whole cycle. Uh, grams per light watt. And if you have a thousand watt light, you just do a thousand light watts. There's a number of different ways to do it. Um, we mentioned, I think earlier, we hit about uh, one gram per watt for the entire watts consumed in the entire ship, about two grams per watt in terms of light watts. Um, to sum it all up, though, you know, it's basically we're able to sustain commercial production levels with an 80 percent reduction in the energy demand. Which which is huge. I mean, not only is that, uh, you know, good for 
energy efficiency and saving energy, but it also reduces the overhead costs for, for your business, correct? Indeed, especially the farmers as well. As we uh, enter into a regulated market here in California, you know, getting used to paying licensing fees and taxes and having other people um, take parts of your margin, we think really the best way, and, and what most people are doing at this point anyway, are trying to reduce their cost of good as much as they can without affecting quality. And by bringing in natural sunlight and fueling plant growth with that, we're able to achieve reductions in the cost of goods sold unmatched by any other solution on the market. In your guys' opinions, uh, do you think that the energy usage that's associated with cannabis production could derail the industry? I mean, there's already provisions in California's initiative that aim towards uh, reducing the amount of water. Right. Right. Water is definitely an important thing. And, you know, we didn't touch on that uh, very much in our the, the DSS Sungrown indoor technique. Eighty two percent of the water that went in was reused and reclaimed. So our net water use was about six gallons per plant over the whole eight week flowering cycle. But that's saving water in California is very important. Do we think that electricity is, is going to be a concern? Well, I know I know that it already is in several places in California. Um, for one, for example, Desert Hot Springs, uh, many of the listeners are probably familiar with the amount of cultivation licenses and um, that city's very welcoming approach to the growth of this industry. Well, they've offered so many permits now at this point that the power cannot simply be delivered. Their demands cannot be met by the infrastructure at that place. So in those, in those cases, a solution like ours can really reduce that load demand um, and, and perhaps allow those businesses to continue forward. I also think that you're seeing in places like Berkeley and Lake County um, limits on uh, mixed lighting situations. So this could be like a, a light depth uh, greenhouse or a greenhouse in which you have some supplemental lights. In the mixed light category, we're probably going get to get to a place, and the legislature may pick this up next year or so, that they're going to start limiting the amount of artificial light watts that you can have in a space. Um, so yes, I think the energy is um, <clears throat> energy conversation is definitely coming, and it's starting now. Uh, the water discussion is always been around, and I think will be. Um, but also, you know, there, there's there's other reasons why you'd want to do it in places like uh, places that have high amount of, of sunlight, like Nevada or Arizona, for example. Um, but it's extremely hot. Um, growing in a greenhouse there, the amount of uh, HVAC you'd have to have in a greenhouse. Uh, wouldn't really take a dent out of your electrical bill. But if you were able to bring that natural free sun into a fully insulated indoor environment that you're able to keep at a stable uh, temperature and, and environmental range, then it becomes another uh, interesting use case and application. What are the implications for large-scale indoor agriculture beyond cannabis using this technology? Well, one of the reasons that it fits with cannabis at this point is because there's enough uh, – distinct market distinctions. Uh, people can tell the difference between indoor and outdoor uh, cannabis. It's difficult for them to tell the difference between indoor and outdoor tomatoes to the extent that it's ever worth doing your tomatoes indoor. So really market <clears throat> is why I would say one of, one of the reasons that hasn't happened much. Where I can see it start happening is places that, does, that don't have outdoor as an option. Um, because they could grow year-round urban farming style with these types of things. Um, and as things get hotter in harsher climates, uh, then I think maybe we'll, we'll want to grow indoors more and more because we won't be able to predict what's going to happen outside, hurricanes and whatnot, which, you know, like we were saying earlier, these are hurricane-proof. So it, it, it makes it to where you can count on your crops a lot more than you traditionally can outside. And so I think that while it doesn't scale right now, there, there's definitely room for it in the future. You know, and I think well, I would approach that and I would say that, you know, large scale, large scale agriculture is being done either outside or in greenhouses. You know, the Central Valley of California provides like 90 percent of, you know, our almonds and t 10 other, you know, nuts and, and agricultural products. You know, large scale agriculture in that way is done outside or it's done in a greenhouse. And the fact that the planet's surface temperature has been continuing to rise and rise and rise 
you know, Monsanto and these other seed companies, they see the writing on the wall. And I think that their biggest focus right now is how to develop heat tolerant and drought tolerant plants. Um, at, at one point, you know, Josh and I will joke around this, uh, you know, late at night when we're just reminiscing on things. But at some point, it honestly might be too hot on the surface of the planet to be able to, to sustain growth of corn or plants. And we'll have to now dig these fields underground and pipe the sun in uh, with the tube. So the cannabis is because, you know, cannabis is driving agriculture innovation, certainly. Uh, everybody with the best minds and uh, the best ideas is all coming together at such an, an exciting and diverse time in the industry. Um, but who knows what the implications are beyond this? We hope that our industry will be able to develop into, you know, socially conscious, uh, public benefiting companies and, you know, really redefine the role of what a capital uh, market can look like. So with all of these these benefits and the, the potential benefits that are still, you know, being discovered, uh, why aren't more people getting on board uh, with this method? Well, so, you know, I think because it's never been done successfully, there's been a few hurdles, right? And we had to, we had to get through those hurdles ourselves first. Do the plants respond well to this light? Okay, check, that worked. The next six series of projects and proof of concepts went to, well, how can we, what can we push them to their limits? What can we get in terms of yield? Um, yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, when you first think about, oh, I can just pipe the light in, the reason a lot of these don't work is because the amount of the amount of PAR, the amount of photosynthetic energy you need to drive plant growth to the extent that it makes sense to have to use indoor real estate to do that is staggering. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting is that you have to be able to fill fill the gap. So when the sun's not as powerful during the day, how do you how do you keep that that uh, photosynthetic energy powerful? Oh, you got to use LEDs. Well, how do you get them smart enough to know? when to be on and when to be off. Those are all the things that we've put the time into to figure out, okay, here's a whole technique. Yeah. Uh, it requires all of these different things because the sun is, is dynamic. Um, you know, growing with it in June is not the same as growing with it in, yeah. in March. So, you know, the first, the first thing when people walk back there, people are in the cannabis industry and check them out, they're just blown away. You know, they, oh, I've been to can cannabis farms all up and down the coast, but I've never seen anything like this. Then they go in the room and see the quality of the light in that space and consider, oh my gosh, these plants are beautiful. I can't believe this is working. And then, you know, consultants started calling. We're speaking to the people in Washington and Hawaii. They wanted to see the buzz. They wanted to see the bud formation. It came out beautifully. And the Skywalker OG that we're, we're curing right now looks fantastic. So data, data, data has gotten us to where we are now. Um, the one argument that's classic in the grow in the in the lighting discussion is, well, which light's better? LED? Uh, plasma, HPS, the, the, the new ceramic ones, but everyone agrees that the sunlight is superior in every way. So now we just need to, uh, I think, demonstrate number one that we can help reduce the cost of the project because the utility companies offer grants and rebates for projects like these. And because we can achieve that 80% reduction in uh, energy demand compared to what this same room, if you would have gone with 1000 watt HPS is, you can get up to 30 to 50% of that entire project cost covered up front. And that's really the next thing that we're moving towards as well. You know, we have plans to get a few going on our farm um, and we're already in conversations with utility companies. So then, you know, they're, they're, the uh, hurdles to buying in are, are rapidly shrinking. I think the writing's on the wall with this one. So why don't you tell me about some of those hurdles that you'd, you'd mentioned when starting out with this technology? I would say like, so building the, the light space, it was the first difficult part. How many, how many of these do we need over what size of an area? How high do we want the roof to be? And where do we want it in that roof? Um, so we went from the design with just one on top of a 120 square foot shed to now with four. Um, that's been great. And then really just balancing and compensating when the light begins to dip outside to you know write description programs to have it te teeter back up with the leds um integration you know but it was with the help of gronetics and heliospectra really that we were able to all come together and, and get all these systems integrated so nicely and that's key for moving forward is continuing to work with uh a whole team to be able to do this because 
Although you can grow with the tubes alone, it's just a lot more difficult and would require a much larger scale. Um, and just you might be relegated to only one part of the year or something like that. The artificials are very helpful. And uh, I would say, especially at this point, very important to, uh, to get out there with the technology so that it doesn't fail the way that people were worried about it failed before. Seeing really is believing. A lot of those hurdles go away as soon as you step into one of these rooms with natural sunlight, man. It's, it's a really amazing feeling. In addition to your own production, you also do consulting to help growers get set up with your systems, correct? Indeed. So, yeah, we have a process to take care of that. If they went to bit.ly.com or bit.ly DSS form, uh, you could start the process of a preliminary analysis. So basically, we're going to ask questions about where you're located, what type of budget range you have, you know, what your 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 grow goals are, what experience you have with growing. Are you using you know cocoa or um, pots on trays? How big are the trays? Things like that. And we're going to uh, also about your location. So like the closest, largest city to you. We get that information and we churn it through a number of data algorithms that look at 15 years of historical weather data to give us an accurate prediction of how much light will be in that space at, at, at what time. So we're able to look at that across the year and get back to you if you're interested in the feasibility of the project. We think that the system that you need would cost about you know, 500,000 and you would be able to rely on the natural daylight for 80% of the months between you know, X and Y. So we basically laid all out in the preliminary analysis. Um, we're also we're, that that would be for a retrofit if someone like had a warehouse or had a building and they were just now planning it all out. Um, also, it's interesting to note we could set up nurseries and clone rooms with these as well with a, a smaller amount of tubes. Um, we're also uh, in the middle of developing a thousand square foot option, so a, a thousand square foot canopy in a 2,600 uh, square foot building that has a clone room and a bedroom and equipment and an office. Uh, that's going to be around like five hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, we'd love to to hear from people who would like to get in and try it, uh, whether they want a smaller unit or a bigger unit. We're really out here um, to share our results and our successes, and inviting those who'd like to try to reach out. So I want to hear about some of the feedback that you guys have already gotten from growers. But before we get into that, we got to take another short break. I'm T.G. Brandfault. I'm here with Dr. Jonathan Cachet and Dr. Josh Erlenbaugh of Flourish Farms. We'll be right back. Entrepreneur, we have heard from dozens of cannabis business owners who have encountered the issue of canna bias, which is when a mainstream business, whether a landlord, bank, or some other provider of vital business services, refuses to do business with them simply because of their association with cannabis. We have even heard stories of businesses being unable to provide health and life insurance for their employees because the insurance providers were too afraid to work with them. We believe that this fear is totally unreasonable and that cannabis business owners deserve access to the same services and resources that other businesses are afforded, that they should be able to hire consultation to help them follow the letter of the law in their business endeavors, and that they should be able to provide employee benefits without needing to compromise on the quality of coverage they can offer. This is why we created the Gondrepreneur.com Business Service Directory a resource for cannabis professionals to find and connect with service providers who are cannabis friendly and who are actively seeking cannabis industry clients. If you are considering hiring a business consultant, lawyer, accountant, web designer, or any other ancillary service for your business, go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to browse hundreds of agencies, firms, and organizations who support cannabis legalization and who want to help you grow your business. With so many options to choose from in each service category, you will be able to browse company profiles and do research on multiple companies in advance so you can find the provider who is the best fit for your particular need. Our business service directory is intended to be a useful and well-maintained resource, which is why we individually vet each listing that is submitted. If you are a business service provider who wants to work with cannabis clients, you may be a good fit for our service directory. Go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to create your profile and start connecting with cannabis entrepreneurs today.
TG Brandfault, and you are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm here with Flourish Farms, and before the break, we were discussing the consulting work you have done, setting up indoor sun-grown systems, uh, the DSS systems, uh, with other commercial growers. What kind of feedback have you received from the growers that you have worked for uh, setting up these systems? Sure. Yeah, What's it's really interesting because, you know, you'll get two kinds of feedback. One is like, oh, I really need that because they're in an area where they don't have a choice or the regulations are thus and so. But more importantly, they're skeptical because they want to know if it's going to work. Um, growers are creatures of habit. They've had to be entrepreneurs themselves, indoor growers for a long time. So they can count on certain yields, certain flowers, and they've already got all their money invested in that. It's difficult to have you know, just a normal thousand square foot or want to just switch over real quick unless someone's pushing them to want to care. Um, given that everything's going well. So you you might think at first, like big operations, sure, like Canada, they're very interested in doing these huge grows. But when you're talking about California or something like that, then you're then you're talking a, to some extent a smaller grower than that. And so you really have to appeal um, appeal to to the ROI to make sure that it makes sense that it's not gonna mess mess the money flow up. Right. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to invest in this and it might not work. I really need to see that it works on scale before I can put any of my money into it. I think that's the mindset for a lot of people. Yeah, I would say it comes down to a yield question. And, you know, everybody I talk to gets three a light, three a tray. You know, that's that's the yield. That's the yield. I don't really see, you know, maybe two a tray. I, yeah. I don't see them. You know, I don't see the data. I don't see the data log books. It's, it's yeah. anecdotal at that point, but they probably are doing pretty well. I think the argument that we make, though, is even if we've got 40% less yield, we still reduce the cost of goods by 80%. Um, and at some point, the, the cost prohibitive of a regulated market is going to come up against where HPS is no longer right. um, manageable from a business perspective, I would say. So, we're very happy with the yield numbers that we've hit. Yeah. We're approaching a pound and a pound and a half per tray. I think it's only up from here once we get the strains dialed in. Um, and that that equation now just doesn't really make sense favoring HPS in terms of the uh, reduction in the cost of goods sold. You, you talk about uh, most growers being entrepreneurs, and you guys are obviously uh, leading the way uh, in terms of uh, this this method and the research and, and how data driven it is. But what what have your biggest mistakes been, uh, you know, getting into this space? Um, and what advice might you have for other entrepreneurs uh, who, who might be interested in doing what you're doing? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um. You know, I would say the biggest mistake one can make is is not getting involved, just not getting out and networking and talking to people. As this as this industry just blows up and expands, the best advice I have to anybody that wants to get into it is just start getting involved, start talking to people. Um, you know, I would say if we, in terms of our our biggest mistakes, um, you know, make sure that you have accurate load calculations and your power infrastructure is where you need it to be. Mm -hmm. Adding a, a solar system and a grow at the same time was led to some miscalculations on ourselves. So work with professionals certainly uh, when it comes to um, electrical codes and building codes and all of that. Like it's going to be more and more important to do things correctly and and log and document all of those things. Yeah. Right. What about for the grow? I would say like, was there anything with the grow, like learning to play with the LEDs or how much LEDs, like dialing in the sensor system? I guess it wasn't, it was a series of trial and error, but we had to yeah. dial it in. Yeah, you have, you have to dial the spectrums in, especially relative to uh, the different plants and how they like to grow. And that's, that's what the LEDs really, really help with. Um, you can also offset some of the sun's stuff. So it's like, if I had to, and there was a lot of far red from the sunset going, but for some reason they were in a period where I wanted them to go longer, I could turn on extra far, like 660 far red, um, which actually make them turn more into a vegetative state. So there, we just have a lot of control. And in terms of networking and getting involved, can you point to a specific moment where you made a particular connection or established a particular partnership that uh, really kind of took things to the next level or opened up new opportunities? 
Well, I would say, you know, an interesting development was when we started pressing rosin, the pure flower oil rosin. So we specialize in the salt almost concentrate, um, pressed only from flowers. And I would say, um, because we're out there and political and networking and talking to people, the ability to find partners up in the Emerald Triangle that trust you and that yeah. you know, there's able to work together and able to share um, common goals and values, um, it's it's much easier to partner with other small businesses than to think you could build an entire brand you know, on your farm alone or with your team alone. Exactly. So all of those partnerships that we've had, you know, even through the California Growers Alliance or CCIA or the Sonoma County Growers Alliance, um, attending the events and finding people that uh, are like minded, everybody's looking uh, onward and upward, really. And so finding people that are on your same wavelength is really important. Um, try to avoid people that uh, start questioning the possibility of, of what you're doing. Um, if you know you're right, you know, you just got to get rid of the, the dead weight and keep on going. Yeah. Get the data. <laughs> Collect the data. Would you guys credit kind of your, uh, you know, your postgraduate work and, and the, de the desire to kind of keep learning as part of the reason that you, this is such a data-driven process for you guys? I would say yes, innately, we want, we want to see the data, but you know, going back to when we were discussing the hurdles, uh, it'd be a really tough sale at this point if we couldn't give you certified data of what we're getting per square foot and the amount of electricity we consume to right. do that. Um, so it was really a necessity to know that, look, if we're going to make an argument at some point that you need to not go from HBS, but you need to get LEDs and sun, uh, that we need to have data to support that and, and continually improving the process by monitoring our own iterations. Um, but, our, you know, I'm a bit of a data nerd, sure. And Josh, you like to crunch a whole bunch of numbers. I like to crunch numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I like to, and I like to know if there's a, if there's an answer that you can get from the data. There not There isn't always, but know why something's happening the way that it is because as an indoor grower, I want a certain amount of control um, so that I'm not constantly surprised by what's going on. That right. gives you consistency and that makes you can meet dates and deadlines and benchmarks and, and these kinds yeah, of things. You can have a live dashboard to know when something's like the temperature's going up two yeah, degrees. It'll let exactly. you know and you can fix it right away. Yeah, you guys employ like an app or a smartphone technology to this thing, right? That's right. Yes, yeah, Gronetic System. They're out of Col uh, Boulder, Colorado. So how early on or at what stage did you begin to employ that uh, into your scheme? That came in the second, like the second research build. Once we started putting four of the tubes mm -hmm. into one of the, in one space, uh, we outfitted the entire thing with 25 different sensors, eight of them focused just on light in the space. Um, that was when we were trying to test the performance analytics, yeah. how much can we grow and for how little electricity can we do it? Um, and the GrowNetic system really allowed us to monitor that in real time. And then not only, now we're churning back through data to see where if there's any um, you know, abnormalities, like a spike in the AC that wasn't controlled or solid, we could hone, that, hone, hone those down. And I wanted to go uh, just backtrack a little bit. Uh, we didn't really talk too much about uh, the rosin, and you know this that rosin's you know really only been around since the the hair straightener video, uh, you know, a little over a year ago, um, and it was you know popularized, and then the the industry emerged from that. Uh, why did you guys choose rosin over the other methods of extraction? Um, that one was pretty easy, actually. Uh, the writing on the wall for MRSA, the California's historical regulations on the medical market here, uh, define manufacturing based on volatile solvents or non-volatile solvents. Um, we had, were playing around with BHO at the time, um, but became very interested in rosin because it was solventless. No, it, it was certainly nothing inherently dangerous, nothing could explode. And in fact, rosin is a more accurate representation of the essence of whatever is being uh, extracted. So, you know, of course we started with the hair straightener for sure. Uh, got one of those from Target, tried that one night. Wow, this works, cool. Uh, moved on to a t-shirt press. Then we're gonna go with one of the 
be, uh, you know, more popular presses that you can get on the market. There's a few companies out there now, but decided instead just to manufacture our own press um, based on what our production goals were um, and our quantity and quality goals were. So, you know, we have a pretty unique press up here and we actually got a few new enhancements or adjustments coming on the way that I'm pretty happy about. Um, and yeah, you know, you, you are right and that the rousing market is small, but you know, I think that it really seeing it, seeing with those is believing as well. So I recommend anyone who hasn't tried rosin, get out there and, and go try it and then try try an AB test next to a BHO and see how you feel. And especially I would say flower rosin in particular with what we specialize in, there's, there's definitely more and more keef and hash rosin coming out and some of it's really good. Um, the flower rosins are, are particularly reminiscent of of the flower that that they came from and i think that once people get used to that palette um they're really gonna really gonna prefer the rosin um to the to the bho but we'll you know we'll see farmers love rosin because yeah that's the thing we know they can taste their fingerprint on the bud in the rosin form so if the aficionados and the growers like it, I think they will just – plus I think that BHO and CO2 uh, and even ethanol extractions, unfortunately, in this first wave of regulations are going to get pretty regulated out. So um, I think rosin is going gonna, is gonna to be the new standard hopefully here pretty soon. Yeah, especially as price comes down as well. We've been trying to scale up so that we can bring the price in the market down for flower rosin. As that happens, then as you close the gap in – um, with the comp with the competitors like CO2 and BHO, then it's more of a fair uh, market comparison because now someone who may not have bought rosin before is going to try it just because the price point makes sense for the first time and they might like it uh, and switch over. So I think really growing growing the market uh, is essential for continuing to do uh, rosin. All right, guys, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, why don't you tell the audience where they can learn more about your products? Certainly, yeah. So on the web, it's flourishedfarms.com, F-L-E-U-R-I-S-H, farms.com. Um, across the social media channels, we're at Flourish Farms. And if you want some behind the scenes on the Sun Grown Indoor, check out at Flourish Farmer. Um, and of course, you can always just send an email or fill out the contact box on our website, info at flourishfarms.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it, Tim. You can find more episodes of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gondrepreneur.com and the Apple iTunes store. On the Gondrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gondrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfold.